Chelsea Brooklyn. This week, we'll be talking about NYC's train daddies, intermittent camps, the virus, and much more. So today in the studio, we have Emily and Jasmine and Teresa. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hello. Good afternoon. You all right, Emily? No. <laughs> Trying to get it together. I really just bumped my head on the mic, which is not what's no. supposed to happen. It's okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. Well, nobody could see that. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, true. Well, we could. Well, well in we case you were somebody. wondering what the hubbub was. Yeah, doing the most to bring you this live news. So how's your week been, ladies? Um, I, you know, fine. <laughs> Pretty uneventful, I guess. I'm going on a trip next, this week. I'm going to Barcelona. Yes, oh, I'm nice. so excited for your international travel. I'm very excited. Have you ever been before? I actually have. I actually have, but I um, have a good friend who lives there now, so I'm excited to go visit. That's cool. awesome. With I new, have some yeah. stories about Barcelona. Oh, do I'll, you? I'll save them for next Okay. Show. We'll save a special segment on the next show. Yeah. I mean, they're they're comical, but darkly so. so. Oh, wow. <laughs> but I had a good time. That's good. Ooh. I've never been, so hopefully. Yay. Bring me back like a magnet or something. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I had a pretty decent week. I can't complain. But good. I also... These days, I can't remember what happened the week before. So I was going to say, I feel like it went fast this week. Just kind of like zoomed by, right? Yeah, kind of. I think yeah. I'm just like, I have this thing that's happening. So I'm just, it's all just prepped to get there at this yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. It's moving really quickly. Yeah. yeah so is uh, the year. Yeah. <laughs> it's like right? a quarter over. It's almost. Gone. Oh my God. I know. That's I know. wild. Um, so right, so well, shall we jump into it? I think we should. So the first story is actually by Matt, who um was, you know, Nice, like wonderful, and put sto- some stories together, even though he couldn't be here today. So, does anyone want to read this first one that Matt put together? No takers. All right. <laughs> I mean, I'm reading the next one, so people are gonna get sick of my voice. No, never that. <laughs> you have a sexy radio voice. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this story um, is from the New York Times, or um, taken from the New York Times. It's called "Goodbye Train Daddy." So Andy Byford was the president of the New York City Transit Authority. He recently resigned. I didn't know anything about him until I heard him referenced in a weekly chat with the mayor segment with the mayor segment on the Brian Lear show. In this segment, New Yorkers call in and ask dem- and demand things from the mayor. So one such demand poised to de Blasio was, what are you doing to keep Andy Bradford from quitting? De Blasio answered, whatever he wants. We love him. Andy, please stay. Matt says he's paraphrasing. So. Who was he and how did he become so beloved in this brief two years as a president? Mr. Bryford focused on basics like signal upgrades and train maintenance to help reverse the system's steep decline. When he arrived in New York, only 58% of trains ran on time. Today, the rate is better than 80%. Complaining about the... Yeah, Yeah. 80% is like pretty accurate, right? As accurate as we're going to get. I know, right? (laughs) But I must say, though, like I like that they have like the little... um, the little map thing and a little time True. timer in the the fact yeah. that it all, does help pretty much all stations at most times let you know when the next train is even if it's not a number you want to see that is true that that is really yeah, helpful it's helpful yeah. um so complaining about the train is a standard perhaps people supported him because he was trying to fix it, the L train many of us Brooklyn free radio people take this train to get to the station and as most of us know the whole system is a bit outdated He inherited a system in crisis, crippled by constant delays that left riders feeling that they could not really rely on the subway to get them from where they needed to be on time. Things had grown so dismal that Mr. Cuomo declared a state of emergency and committed over 800 million to improvements. 
Where are those improvements, yeah. Mr. Cuomo? <laughs> the train doesn't seem like a train. I wonder if this is that same chunk of money that went into stuff like those kiosks that don't really do a lot, but they're right? shiny. Has anybody but tried you know, that? No. Like, they're, they're not. Like, those. it's basically a bunch of commercials that you see. Oh, yeah. Thing. Like, those, 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 those are expensive. Yeah. yeah. The, um, like, the LCD, uh, LED screens. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't right. understand. It's just yeah. a bunch of ads. And I think yeah. there was something where he's, like, a lot of cosmetic changes happen and that's where a lot of the money went i mean yeah. but the train doesn't really seem like it's any cleaner or no seats have been re- no i think jasmine's right i think it's things like that it's transitioning to those um like phone instead of mta card things yeah. like that's where it seems okay the most money i guess i don't know all right so why did he leave he seemingly had the support of the city officials transit workers and even can you believe it the writers but he didn't have the support of one important figure he and Mr. Cuomo never seemed to agree. They clashed over the high cost of Mr. Bryford's fast forward plan for overhauling an archaic system, which technology was best for upgrading signals and how to repair the L train, a key link between Brooklyn and Manhattan. Matt says, I still like to learn more about this, why Andy Bradford was supported and celebrated. I mean, I'm glad that people got behind him, even though there are so many daily opportunities to resent and hate any and all of the subway leadership system. But, I'm really just talking about whenever the train is late, (laughs) but I don't understand it. Why did people become mature enough to realize that sometimes systems are fucked up and they don't get fixed overnight? Anyway, thanks, Andy. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. So we know how Matt feels. About yeah, it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, it, it is pretty funny. Like the New York Times, like the title of this piece was "Train," like "Goodbye, Train Daddy," and that's what. Like the New York Times, like wrote an article being like, tra- like calling him Train Daddy. Yeah, <laughs> just pretty. Did people find him attractive? Wild. I don't know. I, don't know. Like. I mean, it I might mean, have I just been like because he worked for the system. For yeah, so we're just it's just like he wasn't meme that, culture. It wasn't that long. Oh, it wasn't? Yeah, Andy. Like I know. No, he's yeah. British. Like, I think. Yeah, it wasn't that long. You're right, Jasmine. I think it was more just like, all right, we're fixing this thing, like laying down the law. You know, it's like that yeah. face of that person's gonna like fix the problems. Yeah. Daddy coming in. <laughs> All right. Well, just yeah. keep on providing us with the technology to tell us when the trains are coming. Yeah. In. I don't know. Um, it, it seems like it's it's always sad when a lot of the day to day simple things people overlook and they act like it's not important. But mm-hmm. that's that grunt work stuff is what you need it going. for things for infrastructures yeah. to keep going. But yeah, if the powers that be are working against you, like you're going to burn out, get yeah. frustrated and leave or be replaced or forced out. So. Yeah. And like infrastructure, that's like a huge problem, like nationwide, where it's just like it's not sexy enough where people like throw money at it. But then it, it needs to be regularly repaired or you, right. you face crises like this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like regular maintenance could have prevented a lot of this. But. Say love you. All right. Yes. Um, so I have the next local story, ladies. Um, this is called Hostile Architecture on West 17th Street. So uh, I got a bunch of this reporting from AM New York um, and the Community Board 5 website and a little bit from the Coalition for the Homeless. Um and a New York Times article. Anyway, <clears throat> so uh, an application submitted by the landlord of the landmark building at 26 West 70, uh, 17th Street was almost unanimously approved last week by Community Board 5. And what was the application for? To install a security grill, apparently with the explicit purpose of preventing homeless individuals from sleeping in the building's recessed front entrance. The application still needs to be approved by the Landmarks Preservation Committee, 
Um, but the community board's approval is a recommendation of sorts. According to AM New York reporting, quote, no evidence of a homeless encampment exists presently, but employees of one of the building's storefronts, Charles P. Rogers, ironically a company that makes beds, told the villager of AM New York that in the past they've had to step over groups of individuals to open the store in the morning, but for the most part are on friendly terms with the neighborhood's homeless pop- uh, neighborhood street homeless population. Uh, reminder here that this, oh, and that's end quote. Uh, reminder here that this is coming in the midst of what can appropriately be called a crisis of homelessness. According to the Coalition for the Homeless, uh, quote, in recent years, homelessness in New York City has reached the highest level since the Great Depression of the 1930s, end quote. So the proposed security grill falls into the category of what's uh, common or what's called hostile architecture, which are design choices made in public spaces meant to discourage public usage. And it's everywhere in New York City, um, from the spiky metal bits that you'll sometimes see on like low brick walls to discourage you sitting and I guess skateboarding. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the dividers on benches and subway stations that make it less comfortable to lay out and sleep on them. Uh, according to a piece on the topic by the New York Times, which and this article has great pictures of those things, too. So if you're curious about you want to see more of what I'm talking about, you can look up the hostile architecture piece in the New York Times. Um, quote, proponents say this type of urban design is necessary to help maintain order, ensure safety and curb unwanted behavior such as loitering, sleeping or skateboarding. But hostile architecture in New York and other cities has increasingly drawn a backlash from critics who say that such measures are unnecessary and disproportionately target vulnerable populations. They have assailed what they call, quote, anti-homeless spikes for targeting those who have nowhere else to go at a time when many cities are grappling with a homelessness crisis, end quote. Hmm. Um, Yeah, so that was just a little piece I put together. It's interesting that, um, I mean, this is, you know, this the particular question of security grill itself, like, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's definitely something we should be talking about. Um, and it's like, you you know, you can see how the building, like the building from their perspective, they need this, right? That is from what their needs are to be as, as people who work in this building, this seems like the right move for them as community, as community members and, you know, people in the city, we can take a broader perspective on the whole issue and see how, you know, this isn't good. Like where, so like those homeless people are just going to have to find another place to sleep at night. Right. And it's like, yeah. it's a bigger issue than what this particular thing is. Um, and it also seems like how about instead of spending money on this girl, you spend money on finding, you know, a way to get these people off the street at night, which is, you know, another way of looking at it. Um, what do you, you guys know, think? You yeah. know, I never noticed, um, hostile architecture mm-hmm. now that, uh, now that you're saying it, yeah. I'm, I'm going to like really pay yeah. more attention yeah. to that. Once, once you're aware of what it is, you see it everywhere. everywhere. Like there's even these new little bench things that they're not even benches because mm-hmm. you can't sit down. It's like you can kind of lean back mm-hmm. on it a little. Yeah. They look so ridiculous. I'm like, what the I've seen, who? yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, but it's that's like the, the little mini, like the little like, like tilty thing that yeah, like, yeah. It's like, what yeah. the fuck is I this? was just, like, I was just at the bus stop on the way here. Yeah. Like, it was a woman standing in front of me. I was like, does it mean that I can't stand there? Right. Do I want to stand there? Yeah. yeah. It's really, it's really fucked up. Yeah. Because it, and, and it's extremely cruel because what these people who are at the point where that's where they sleep, mm-hmm. it's not like they necessarily just woke up one day and was like, this is what I mm-hmm. want to do. Like, yeah. my, like they have nowhere else right. to go. And it's, so, it's dehumanizing in a lot of ways too. And you know, there you, it's not just about, um, 
hostile architecture is also is not just for pe- like you know ostensibly for people. It's also those like really spiky bits you'll see on the rafters of maybe subway stations to keep birds from sitting there and shitting mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, but it's like okay, so now you're you're comparing people who need a place to sleep, like you know, like not in so many words, but in the choice, the design choices you're making, you're saying, well, this person is as much of a nuisance as this bird that's going to crap all over the people mm-hmm. here. So it's kind of like it's like. Who are you protecting again? Like, you know, what? why are you making these choices? And it's also like, it's very much, it's like it creates this kind of like, you know, Gotham City sort of discrepancy between the people with the money who want to keep people, you know what I mean? It's like, keep the the riffraff, if you will, quote unquote, like off my stuff. Where, But like there, there's literally a cri- like there's like all great, de- great depression levels of homelessness. So yeah, it's very Pretty wild. It seems like another band-aid thing. Like just like mm-hmm. we were talking about with the subway, like there's a lot of money to be put towards oh, like we can make it look like this is better, but then right. what's the root cause of exactly. the issue that's leading to this? You're not addressing it. Right. So it's like, yeah, it's just cuz you're not seeing it doesn't mean it's being fixed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting little piece there for sure. All right, awesome. Should we take a break? I think so. So, um, do we have to do a little phone transition here, or should I, we just? Oh yeah, play on my phone. Okay. Yeah, let's All do right. that real quick. Real quick. So, and while while Ter- uh, Teresa's getting you got this some set studio up. reads. Yeah, Might you want to do our studio reads about? early, Jasmine? Yeah, why not, right? Sure, maybe I'll do all three. All right, <laughs> let's do it. All right, so Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air, support independent community media by pledging whatever you can. All contributions are tax-deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. That's RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. And it looks like we're going to be listening to... Oh, oh almost. We're almost listening. We're, we're almost there. there. I thought you were going to read all three. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I'll keep going. RFB mobile app. If you'd like to listen to RFB when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone and Android available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Okay, so now we're going to listen to um, Lucky Day, and this song is called Fade Away. Is it cruel to me to pretend I can't see it? 
Objection to the Rule, your live Sunday morning news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. So what'd you guys think about that song, Fade Away? Um, oh, also, did we introduce ourselves today? Yeah, yeah we, did. we did. I we forgot. Did. Oh, did we? That's when you bumped your head on the Oh, mic. that's why. I, yeah. I forgot everything we said. Anyway, <laughs> me, Emily, I that song was beautiful. Yeah, it was from the um, soundtrack of The Photograph. I love that. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Well, I've seen it's it. Um, list, it was It was a beautiful movie, I must say. Like, we are so... Um, drama prone that is like <laughs> complicated to watch a movie that doesn't have any like a real trauma. You know, what you I'm mean saying? like the stories we're drawn yeah, to <laughs> the storyline. Like some people were saying it was like boring because it just was like really surface level. Mm-hmm. But it's like we're so used to being so problematic for people to have relationships. Mm-hmm. We can't just like sit back and watch something that is a little different than mm. that, you know? Yeah. Is but it I, like a comedy at all? Or? Yes, there was some funny moments. Of course, you know, Issa's hilarious. Uh, so so is Lakeith. Yeah. Um, but it was just, a, you know, it just didn't have that like, oh, mom oh, right. moment. Like, like, it was like real people in relationship, real stories, you know? But okay. it had an interesting twist on how they met and why they were connected. So I like that. I support the movie. Go check it out. Amazing. And check out the soundtrack. Most of the rest of the songs on there are from Robert Glasper, who's one of my favorites. So I love that. Awesome. All right. So into this national news. All right. So Sarah Weck, who is not with us in the studio today, but she's with us in spirit. Yeah. Hi, Sarah. And she's not dead. She's just not able to be in the studio (laughs) today. She's very much alive. Yes. Yes. Alive and making things happen. Jasmine's going to present a story that Sarah wrote for us. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, so national story, formal apologies issued by the state of California for Japanese internment camps in World War II. 78 years later, an apology is issued to Japanese Americans forced from their homes and into internment camps during World War II. This is not the first apology that has been issued. Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act of 1988 to denounce internment as motivated by racial prejudice, wartime hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. The more recent issues by the California Assembly specifies its apology to all Americans of Japanese ancestry for its past actions in support of the un- of the unjust exclusion, removal, and incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, and for its failure to support and defend the civil rights and civil liberties of Japanese Americans during this period. So these are Sarah's words. Uh, Sarah wrote, This strikes her as good news, but also an interesting topic for discussion. The apology is also intended to address the current political climate, stating that given recent national events, 
It is all the more important to learn from the mistakes of the past and to ensure that such an assault on freedom will never again happen to any community in the United States. These types of actions within our government are sometimes skimmed over in favor of larger news stories, but Sarah wanted to bring this to the table to start a conversation, especially with the election coming up and many people drawing past and present parallels. For example, some public reaction to Bloomberg eerily echoing Trump's 2016 rise to popularity about ways that our country can benefit from historical reminders such as this. She wonders what everyone, I guess listeners and us in the studio now, think about this action and whether or not there are local or national movements to promote similar ways of thinking or if anyone views this apology in a negative context. So she left us with some questions to talk about hmm. interesting that um viewing the apology in a negative context that's an interesting well, question think, for sarah to bring up i think some people do that when we have these sort of stories because they don't represent like all communities so it's easy mm. to say oh you're gonna apologize to them you should apologize to so-and-so for so-and-so yeah, you should <laughs> you know no i absolutely agree with you yeah. i was just gonna say that yeah. i i support the apologies and yeah. these like public declarations of reality because people are still really wounded and i feel like it's it's um mm-hmm. it shows a bit of compassion in yeah. a world where we get a lot of negativity about yeah. you know all types of issues that we face but they open up conversations. They open up dialogue. Mm-hmm. They make people talk to each other about what's going on instead of just, you know, the same thing that's always been happening, mm-hmm. like spewing hate, yeah. spewing confusion. So yeah. I support this notion. Yeah. And, you know, in the current climate, which is so, you know, to say divided feels like almost a cliche at this point, but it's still like, you know, there's there's all these movements forward to like recognize well, these presidents were slave owners and I don't think it's appropriate to like, you know, almost worship these people as like, you know, these people that were infallible and blah, blah, blah. So like this movement to have discussions about that while also this huge backlash from people who like somehow feel attacked by that, you know? Um, So it, it, you know, maybe it's like themes related in that issue where, um, wow, I forgot the thread I was going to say, I'm not going to lie, but um, (laughs) it it, it feels relevant. It feels like it's part of that discussion we're all having. Mm -hmm. Um, where there's all these movements forward and any sort of movement where there's more discussion of these things. And, you know, in light of how we as a population kind of change our views on things over time, I think is good. So like, you know, there's a lot of people who don't want to see it like this, but the constitution and just the way we as a society, we're always meant to be like a living, breathing sort of thing. um, Population that's allowed to look back and kind of, you know, say this was bad. We regret this and we don't want this to happen again. And I think that's good. I think the more of that is is good. Um, I think that it's good to say these things, but of course it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Like it's not sufficient. So I think it's like the example that you just gave about like when you recognize, oh, these buildings or these statues are named after these individuals and maybe they shouldn't be. There's like a concrete action that can be taken to reverse that. Like you can mm-hmm. decide we're going to name this after mm-hmm. maybe the people that originally mm-hmm. lived on this land. Like that's something that is actionable. And I, I would say that there is a danger sometimes and people can be like, oh, like I feel bad or this 
should not have happened, but that's where it ends. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. well, we said sorry. Mm-hmm. Like, what more do you want? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, I would be curious to know, like, what ha- have there been reparations right. to these families? And that that was, you know, like, pe- I'm sure people died. Like, there were people that were very sick in mm-hmm. these camps. Like, businesses lost through generations. So. People who lost their businesses because they weren't able to work at their businesses. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So it's a good start, but it's not enough, and it's it's not enough to be like, well. It's one thing to say this shouldn't happen again, but it's happening right now Mm -hmm. again to other groups of people. So Mm -hmm. it's a good beginning, but it's definitely not the end. Let's see what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. Is there another step that can be taken? Yeah. Amazing. And then, all righty. So we got a story, another story here for Matt. Thank you again to Matt for putting this together. Um, This one's got some hot language. A lot of (laughs) a lot of all caps here. So I'm going to try and do the story justice, Matt. Um, But it's titled, all caps, don't be racist. The coronavirus isn't an an Asian virus. It's a virus dipshit. Um, So this is a New York Times uh, researched piece, I think based out of Chicago. So, quote, strings of lanterns and festive red and gold swayed high above the streets in Chicago's Chinatown. But a few people strolled the sidewalks on a recent afternoon. At Slurp Slurp Noodles, tourists were not filling the usual tables for lunch, a waitress said. A school crossing guard had stashed a face mask in her pocket, ready to slip it on when her nerves began to fray. End quote. This sounds like a, uh, like just a story, but an observed decline in business has occurred. So much that, quote, city leaders in Chicago and New York made a point of visiting those cities' Chinatowns last week, encouraging visitors to patronize restaurants and shops where business has suffered. End quote. Associating disease with locations is natural and in regards to epidemiology accurate, but it's quite easy to make the jump from the area of Wuhan and a Chinese restaurant in Chicago, and that is not cool. So it's too easy, what he's trying to say. Um, People make jokes about eating raw bat, like that's how the disease was made, and it wasn't. Um, If you're concerned with contagions in livestock, then America and our insane reliance on antibiotics and cattle is way more of an issue, presumably. And I agree with Matt there. It is a big issue. Um, But connecting diseases to races or nationalities is not a new thing. One famous contagion was called the, quote, French disease by Italians. The Poles called called it the Italian disease, and the Russians called it the Polish disease. The Dutch called it the Spanish disease, and the Turks uh, changed genre and called it the Christian disease. But guess what? It was just syphilis. (laughs) Um, Viruses and outbreaks in general are scary. It takes calm governments and chill citizens to allow us to adapt to this new contagion. And besides, the rate of new infections is going down, and there are only 15 confirmed cases in the U.S. right now, and only one caused by person-to-person transmission. Um, So chill out. The virus doesn't care if you're Asian. And that's all for Matt. Um, We can always rely on Matt to... T- kind of tie a news story in with a with some like interesting editorializing bringing in larger context and mm-hmm. sort of interesting stories about syphilis so thank you matt um for teaching us a little bit more about how i guess xenophobia and our fear of diseases kind of can tie into each other yeah there's actually there's people that have been attacked like near my job really? like someone was a student was punched in the face and they wow. called her name because she's she was asian so Ugh. this is some really scary shit, you That's know, when bad. people really get that in their mind that yeah. you know, they associate certain groups or mm-hmm. a certain phenotype with being diseased. It's, mm-hmm. It can lead to some very ugly shit. Very much so. Yeah. All right. 
Well, thank you, Matt. Yeah. Very interesting concept. Good issue to bring notice to. Thank you. And then um, looks like I actually have the next story too, Teresa. I feel like you, you were trying so to power through. Like, we're proud of you for talking about that. Oh, yeah. That illness. <laughs> right. I, I, right. As Jasmine is well aware, I in particular, like, you know, my house of horrors is just filled with diseases. Like, that's just my personal. I just I stay up an extra hour at night sometimes just like panicking and cringing. Just but like not like, you know, like it's um like I am the you know, like I I'm, I do a pretty good job of separating out like, you know, media hysteria from the reality of most situations. But there's something about like pathogens and viruses that I just can't like I went to a museum with my roommate once and there was a whole exhibit about disease. And I was like, you can go in there. I am not like I just can't do it. But um. Well, thank you, Jasmine. I appreciate your support. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know we, we see you overcoming your fears. <laughs> Knowledge is power, y'all. Knowledge is power. You can do it. I can do it. Anyway. <clears throat> All right. So moving forward to an election update, which is some other people's houses of horror. Uh, ho- house <laughs> of horrors, mine. whichever pluralized word it is. Okay. So after winning the popular vote in the Iowa and New Hampshire Democratic primaries, and now Nevada by a good margin... NPR is calling Bernie Sanders the man to beat for the Democratic nomination for president. One major takeaway as we look forward to the general election in the fall is that Sanders was able to expand his voter base well beyond those considered to be his core supporters. Quote, Sanders won not only with voters under 30 and people who identify as very liberal, but also with men, women, Hispanics, overwhelmingly, voters 45 to 64, and people with and without college degrees, according to polls conducted as voters entered caucus sites. He also did well among black voters and moderates, finishing a close second to Joe Biden with both groups that are supposed to be the former vice president's base, end quote. And that was from NPR. Um, But here's a twist. Apparently, the Russians are trying to interfere interfere in the primaries to help Bernie, uh, but they're also trying to help Trump. So uh, a quote from The New York Times, uh, Russia's Russia's interference on behalf of both Mr. Trump, the dominant force in the Republican Party and Mr. Sanders, a stalwart of the left, underscores its efforts to sow chaos across the political spectrum. Undermining the democratic system remains at the core of Russia's efforts to raise its own stature by weakening the United States, according to current and former officials. So, you know, just stay alert and check your sources when you read information on the internet because they, there's proof out there that Russia um, and, you know, who knows who else it might be out there. You know, the things you read on the internet aren't always true. Yeah. And check your biases, biases, right? Like you're, I think just as it's human nature to seek out things that confirm things you already want to be true or already believe to be true. So just be careful on the sources and where you're getting your information. And just because someone posts a link, like, you know, where who wrote the article that it's posted to, like, it doesn't mean it's true. Um, and, you know, it's scary out there, but do your research. You know, like I, a lot of people don't, you know, trust this, have their own biases against like the New York Times, for example, and the Washington Post. But I personally know that they follow a certain journalistic standard that makes me feel comfortable relying on the information they provide Mm -hmm. the vast majority of the time. So things like that, where just do your research, you know, who's writing what, why is it being posted? I also think uh, it's important to look inward sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of things that are messed up about 
our electoral politics have to do with voter suppression and things mm-hmm. of that nature that is happening like within our own borders. So Absolutely. I'm not I'm not saying that you know, foreign interference is something that doesn't happen. Like it absolutely does happen, but there's also a lot of work that can be done with like mobilizing people that don't want to vote and Mm -hmm. have the access to like, what's, what's a way that you, besides scaremongering Mm -hmm. or fearmongering people, what's a way to get them activated or interested in voting? Like, are there people that are unable to get to a polling site by design because people in their area, like politicians don't want that population to have access to voting. So I think it's also important to keep that in mind because when it's easy to have like a boogeyman that's some Mm -hmm. foreign like they're doing this they're doing that and it's like what can you do about that but these more local things there's more things that you possibly can get involved in and work towards and also like encouraging young people to get involved in the vote because Mm -hmm. I feel like the youngest generation right now like my students they always question whether their vote counts they always you know just like assume that it doesn't make sense for them to get involved because they just don't trust they don't trust the system right now everything that they're experiencing under this administration you know and within their lifetimes yeah they're you know their actual timing that they could could possibly vote has made them feel like they are unimportant and and their voice doesn't matter so just really checking on the young people you know and encouraging them even if it's one by one to just you know get engaged and find out what's going on Mm -hmm. and and explain to them how it will affect them moving forward and that's a big piece that yeah and this is all tied into things we've talked about we've referenced kind of when when the big national picture feels so overwhelming and just like you said Teresa and you Jasmine like and you're like, how, you know, instead of getting nihilistic and saying none of it matters, look at that, like the local level is where these decisions are really being made. The gerrymandering by local politicians to mm-hmm. make it harder for the, you know, the opposing sides vote to matter because they're grouping together. So, you know what I mean? Like yeah. that, that sort of rigging happens on a local level. Um, yeah. Pay attention and, you know, make protecting voter rights like um there's there's politicians out there that are limiting early voting sites and early voting days right. to make it longer lines and to discourage people like this is happening. Yeah, there are ways to to work on that on the local level, too. All right. Cool. So on that note, we're going to take another musical break before we get to world news. And I, I guess we have a good news story also coming up towards the end. Yeah. So this song is. What's how do you pronounce her last name? Eilish. Eilish. Okay, yes. I saw some Baby. people saying eyelash, like oh. trying to be funny. <laughs> okay, here's "Bad Guy" by Billy Eilish. Awesome.
Welcome back, guys. That was Billie Eilish, bad guy. Do you guys love her? We were just discussing yeah. some interesting information about her. The no, <laughs> my five. my stupid gossip, but uh, no, but she's she's doing great. She um, it's also like I was. Someone told me that her whole. Do you know how her dress is like? Yeah. It's like a point of conversation because yeah. it's like it. You know, there's she all uses these things. Her fashion, she, yeah, and but it's like you know she gets um criticized because it doesn't quote like match her sound, which mm-hmm. is weird a weird thing to say to anybody but then it's also apparently her goal in the way she dresses is partly because she doesn't want anyone to see what her body really looks like underneath it because she doesn't mm. want any comments on it Interesting. which I think is pretty rad very similar to the her thing when she kept her mm-hmm. glasses on and it still does because she didn't want people to really know what the she looked thing? like her, her the artist oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it, yeah. yeah people you know she just really wanted mm-hmm. people to love the music and see yeah. Yeah, Sia who chose to not have her face associated with it at all. It's interesting. I love when artists make their art political yeah. in that way. Yeah, same. And even their life, right? Yeah. Anyway, that's another discussion for another <laughs> yeah. day. All right. So should we jump into this world news? Hell yeah. All right. So this story uh, came from a little bit from the New York Times and from CNN. And it's about a countrywide protest over the pipeline in Canada. Have you guys heard about this at all? Uh, briefly, but I, okay. a, a while ago. So I'm, yeah, I'm interested to hear what you kind of been going on for yeah. quite some time. Yeah. So, um, I think one of us may have reported on it actually not too long ago. Um, but okay, here we go. Pro- protesters blocking Canadian railways have shut down large portions of the nation's passenger and freight train service this week, knocking out travel options for thousands of people t- between Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa. Hundreds of freight trains have been stalled in ports in, e- in Eastern Canada have been isolated from the rest of Canada and the United States. Factories have even braced for closing because of delivery and interruptions. So the protest started last week when police started arresting members of the indigenous group that was blocking the road to the construction site for the Coastal Gas Link natural gas pipeline in British Columbia. Indigenous groups and their allies blocked railways and government buildings around the country in solidarity. Both British Columbia and the elected band councils for the Watsuit First Nation in the province, the leadership established under Canadian law, have signed into a 416-mile pipeline project, which links gas wells in the British Columbia interior to a new liquefied natural gas terminal at its coast. So I actually watched a news story about this and it's saying that that should be able to link that natural, that liquefied natural gas terminal all the way to Asia. Whoa. Um, which is huge, right? I yeah. mean, this is not just like a small one. This is like a huge project. Mm-hmm. Um, the company building the pipeline will cost about 6.2 Canadian dollars. I don't know how different that is. I think it's a little bit more a than ours. A billion Canadian? 
6.2 billion Canadian dollars. Yeah. Um, and hundreds has been promised in millions of dollars in contracts to the indigenous businesses in the area. Wow. But another branch of the Wasuan leadership, the hereditary chiefs, say this pipeline will alter the traditional lands and they have been protesting in an encampment. These different const- can't encampments um, at these various construction sites for a past year. So there's lots of different encampments and there's um, it's along the rail service. Mm. I think the interesting thing about here is that it's not just the indigenous people, but their allies and they're literally blocking mm. the, the rail system, like for transportation, for importing of goods. So it's like a countrywide thing that's been going on. Um, last week, the police acted on a warrant, tried to remove them, inspiring protesters across the country to act in sympathy and set their own blockades, as well as campsites at transport sites, beginning with one in Titananga. Less than 24 hours after the protests began, the court granted a railway, the railway an injunction ordering the demonstrators to leave. But how and when that would be enforced is unclear. On Monday of this week, before dawn in Vancouver, the police made 33 arrests at the entrance of the port. A video from the scene do show that the arrest took place peacefully and that the police allow other demonstrators to remain near the scene. Um, but they didn't try to block the port. Wow. So, yeah. So this is kind of uh, a big thing. The prime minister was um, on a news conference. He's traveling Africa right now. And he was just saying, like, you know, they are why they're trying to respect the rights of these indigenous mm-hmm. organizations. They're a country of law and the protesters have to allow them to complete this project. But I think what's interesting in this story is that. You know, the hereditary chiefs, um, they don't represent the larger amount of the population that have agreed. I think they said there was like five bands and about twenty eight hundred people agreed to the project Mm -hmm. because they're they're saying that if they don't build this pipeline, um, they'll be living in isolation for even longer. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people need jobs and Mm -hmm. services and things of that nature. So it's a, you know, it's a really complex issue. Yeah. Um, considering that some of the people have signed on to it and and some of them have not. But shout out to all the people in Canada showing solidarity. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting because it shows that, like, you know, minorities are not a monolith. Like, they don't all agree on what's best for, like, themselves as a group, which I think is important for everyone to remember, that there isn't one way to see any group of people. Yeah. 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 I think it's interesting that other people outside... Of this group mm-hmm. of people have taken such a drastic action. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking what, you know, when in America have we seen people show solidarity <laughs> in this capacity yeah. that it would stop an actual rail service? Yeah. I mean, has that ever happened? Well, the Canadians are so nice. You know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that it's if you're going to take action, sometimes mm-hmm. you do have to do something that actually shuts things down. Like yeah. when you see protests that happen within the u.s like there are a lot of black lives matter matters protests where people would be stopping traffic people mm-hmm. are like well mm-hmm. it's okay to protest but not this way and it's right. like well it's the like, way to do it is in a way where you force people it's to impactful listen to you yeah. yeah so you know it's it's unfortunate because um i think in the u.s we often think about race issues as black and white and like i'm a black person myself so that's my perspective but mm-hmm. i know in canada like there's a very large like native population that has been treated very badly Mm -hmm. by the Mm -hmm. government for hundreds of years. So um, I definitely think that they should have a right to be like, look, we were here first, like our traditions like matter to us. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's probably in some way connected to discrimination and mistreatment that people are in a desperate situation Mm -hmm. where we're like, well, we need this money no matter what, you know, and that can lead to making some difficult decisions mm-hmm. yeah so yeah like yeah. i 
I'm too bad that so many people are being arrested. Like, I do hope that they're able to come to a different kind of agreement with this. I mean, I think they've been working for it. You know, the reason that the story kind of came up, I think, in news this week is because they just started having arrest. Um, People have been protesting for almost a year to the point that is affecting the transportation system in Canada and uh, the economy because of it. So I think um, the last update I heard is that like some rail service was being shut down because of this. And I think it's just expanding the amount. Like recently it's it's been there's been an uptick in the protesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I'm curious. Um about the the environment like um climate change related issues related mm-hmm. to this too because we talk they, like the, the environmental issues here are specifically related to the first nation lands which is not not to discount that at all yeah that's super important is actually often in conjunct like works in conjunction with climate change issues too but i'm curious about how stopping a natural gas line either benefits efforts to halt climate change or hurts the ability to transition away from um, like a uh, coal and um, like a uh, petroleum. Yeah, right. just out of curiosity. Yeah, but I don't really know. We'll have to look yeah. into that. Yeah, it's interesting. Another well, another yeah. angle on the issue. Yeah, yeah. To be continued. To be continued. And then uh, Jasmine, our next world story with a great pun in the title. You know what? I wasn't even gonna read it. But uh, now you that better. You, now that you. So <laughs> I, I giggled when I saw it. All right, so this comes from an article by Kate Brown that was on Artnet.com, and my mix on the title was British Museum May Be Losing Its Marbles Over Brexit. Mm. But it's not really its marbles. It's Greece's marbles. So (laughs) a draft European Union mandate leaked to the media this past week, and it included a clause about returning cultural objects, which, you know, you can imagine the British Empire, mm-hmm. like they, they have a lot of shit that is not theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, the clause says the British government should address issues relating to the return or restitution of unlawfully removed cultural objects to their countries of origin. Various EU governments are supposed to finalize and sign the mandate this week before negotiations with the UK begin in March. So this is you know, connected to Brexit, like you want to leave the European Union, like these are some of the conditions that we would like to see met. Um, Greece, Italy, Spain, and Cyprus proposed this particular clause about returning cultural objects. And um, there's a set of marbles called the Elgin marbles that were shipped from Greece to London in the early 19th century by British aristocrat Lord Elgin. Do any of you know who he was? No. Not off the top of my head, no. Okay, well, I'll tell you who he was. He was a thief. (laughs) He took the statues from the Parthenon in Athens in the early 1800s and sold them to the British government, and they are still there now in the British Museum in London. Hmm. Some officials involved say the clause in the mandate is seen as a direct reference to these particular marbles. I'm not sure why, like, they isolated those but maybe because Greece was a part of um, discussing like Mm. this issue others think that the clause refers to the illegal trade of antiquities in Europe and Britain so like more contemporary things like being looted and stolen and Mm. sold on the black market Greece has been campaigning to have the marbles returned since 1832 so that's almost 200 years Wow! so Elgin went over there allegedly like he had people like taking drawings of the Parthenon mm-hmm. and doing models and sculptures and things. He stole a bunch of these statues 
there was a shipwreck where a bunch of them like ended up in the ocean and a diver had like divers had to be hired to recover them like it was really the drama yeah drama and they're actually the statues that are still in their original state in the parthenon are in better condition than the ones that were stolen Hmm. um so other issues in the mandate include migration fishing rights farming and the financial sector The British Museum and the UK government have not budged in the face of pressure to return the marbles to Greece, even though people in very high positions in the Greek government have called for their restoration to Athens, including the prime minister. U.S. academic Patricia Vigderman says that the issue of returning the marbles has come up multiple times when there's been a crisis such as during World War II, revolts in the 1950s, and right now, like Mm -hmm. with Brexit, causing so much turmoil. She says, in the ancient world, returning captured booty was a way of marking a ruler's power Mm -hmm. and magnanimity. Such mag... Wait. Well... Magnanimity? Magnanimity. (laughs) So it's basically like it was a sign of how gracious a Mm -hmm. ruler was that we will return these things to you. We recognize their cultural importance to your people. But she says such large mindedness is decidedly not the hallmark of our time. A spokesperson for the British Museum restated its position. They said the Parthenon sculptures were legally acquired and Mm. help us to tell the story of human history presented at the museum. They are accessible to the six million global visitors the museum reaches each year. In 2019, British Museum director Hartwig Fisher said the marbles would not be returned Because when you move cultural heritage into a museum, you move it out of context. Yet that displacement is also a creative act. He said the sculptures are as at home in Britain as they Mm. are in an archaeological museum in Athens. So, yeah, I I thought to talk about this because I was just at the museum. I was at the Met yesterday for a while. Oh, you should have came by the bar. I was working. Uh, Where they were playing the, um, the music. Yeah, cool. (laughs) but yeah i thought it was um i think it's perfectly fair that these countries are like hey we want our stuff back like you can't have your cake and eat it too like you don't want us you're not a part of the club anymore but you still want to have like Mm -hmm. these things that are ancient and very important to our history yeah hold them hostage like that's not fair yeah i agree I, (laughs) i mean i as someone you know basically uh, unaffected by Brexit and except like emotional ways like yeah like fuck you get their shit back like you fucked <laughs> up get out of here <laughs> yeah I mean I definitely think it's something that they didn't consider would be so important because they was like on the right. smash train out but yeah definitely um yeah there's fallout yeah I mean what did you expect it's right? like collateral damage and it's it, you can't be mad at people for wanting to have their relics and their history totally yeah like I hope that it starts like a domino effect of more people and other maybe mm. not like why stop in europe like there's so many yeah. other parts of the world i where... think i did see actually a story on cnm about someone returning um a relic to ethiopia this cool. past week Very yeah. Cool. yeah yeah well thank you jasmine that's an interesting story um we don't often talk about i think like we don't get the opportunity to talk about i think cultural stuff like that that often i think like usually political and other issues like yeah 
well, you know, take the forefront. But I that was I a really think interesting my story. story. Is very similar. Yeah, actually, that worked <laughs> out really well. Speaking of the good week. news, it's so Thank- funny because I was like looking for good news, and there wasn't a lot out there. Oh. So I was like, well, what do I like? And I like art, as we all know. Oh, yeah. I work at the museum, so um, another museum story. Um, so I think it's good news uh, because anytime art imitates life, is is that's what art is for, in my mm-hmm. opinion. Um, the Minneapolis Museum showcases a safe passage. Ex- exhibit so this story um i got it from cnn but it was a lot of different places that i seen it um an art installation called safe passage by chinese artist a wahi i think that's how you pronounce her name i Weiwei. way way i way way i think yeah. there we yeah. go has made his debut in the minneapolis institute of art in minnesota it features 2400 life jackets that were once worn by refugees making a journey from turkey to greece uh, they were originally donated to the author uh, to the artist by authorities in Lesbos, Greece. So the way the picture is for the article, the life vests are in the columns in the front of the museum. So when you show up, they're just mm. like stacked on these columns so you can't like not see it. Wow. Um, so just a little background, Minnesota has the highest number of refugees per capita in any state in the U.S., hmm. according to the Immigrant Law Center in Minnesota. That's one of the reasons the museum said it wanted to bring it to Minneapolis. The work is being shown as a part of a larger exhibit called When Home Won't Let You Stay, Art and Migration that seeks to explore the dynamic global conversation surrounding migration, immigration and forced displacement. Uh, it was introduced in Berlin in 26, 2016. So the U.S. debut of the installation comes amidst uh, rising refugee tensions in the U.S. You know, what a uh, interesting time. And there was actually an exhibit uh, at the Met um, of another a Brooklyn artist that was very similar to this. They just went down in the fall of these statues of women from the diaspora outside of the museum. But I think it's interesting that they put these like at the gate, at the doorway, Mm. so you can't not see these exhibits. Um, So Gabriel Ritter, who is a curator and the head of the contemporary art um, at the museum, he made the statement. My hope is that that this does stop people in their tracks and force people to think and does implicate people in the decisions they make. Because here in Minnesota, they are very much our friends, our neighbors, our people we live with as part of our communities. Um, so safe passage is meant to highlight the highlight the perilous journey migrants made into Europe and also highlights in, an, in another way, a serious issue that many people face across the world. So I will post this to our Facebook yeah. group so you guys can check out the uh, the art. But I think that's really cool that yeah. this museum is uh, showcasing something that gives people an opportunity to create space to talk about this issue. I agree. And the parallels between the two stories you read too, guys, because like. I, you know, a lot of people see Brexit as like a reaction to the migrant crisis in some mm-hmm. ways and like at the way it's all related, especially in Europe, the yeah. European angle here that tied together so nicely. <laughs> wow. Well, we love art. We do love art. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and this sounds like a piece of art that's doing what art should do. Like it mm-hmm. should reflect our time yes. and what's mm-hmm. going on and, you know, make it should be a time capsule for people to be able to look back and see what was happening, mm-hmm. what was urgent, like what was going on yeah, and what were the forces at play that caused these things to happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nothing, you can't really separate um, art from life and mm-hmm. culture and history. Like they're all so connected. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, ladies, any last thoughts for the week? Mm. <sighs> well, it's the last week or it's coming up on one of the last weeks of black history month yeah. is it this week or next this, week going into next week next, next weekend is uh the tw- is 
the 29th is Saturday. Bingo. It's actually my dad's birthday party in Cincinnati. Oh, oh cool. my daddy's turning 85. Wow. Oh, yeah. He's a grown ass man. Or 86. I don't know. There's this story in my family where he was born in a leap year. Cool. So whenever his it birthday, like, yeah. So it's on the 29th, the party. How random. Oh, right. oh, nice. oh that's right. Um, I was yeah, looking at the to my daddy, Kelly in Cincinnati. Hey, boo. That's yeah. right. Um, but speaking of black history, I was telling you ladies, I went to see the Jill Scott um, yeah. tour this weekend at our, uh, this week at Radio City. It was the 20th anniversary of her first album, Who Was Jill Scott? Imagine this world like without Jill Scott like <laughs> 20 years ago. Uh, but she was phenomenal and I've always been a huge fan. Amazing. Um, and there's no bad seat in Radio City. So it was just absolutely great. And um, yeah, shout out to her for making Black History. Amazing. She's a very interesting story. I'm uh, highlighting in one of my showcases later this year. So I love that. Okay. Awesome. Guys. And you, you work at the Met now at the bar? Yeah. I so, am bartending at the Met in the Asian Gallery on the second floor. Come see cool. me. Yeah. And also, they have a really good exhibit right now about um, empires of the Sahel in mm. West Africa. So I greatly encourage people to go. It's not Black American history, but it's super ancient, very interesting Black African history. So check cool. that out if you get a chance. Awesome. Um, so that's it this week for Objection to the Rule. Thanks for listening. You can catch all our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or iTunes podcast. Yeah. So, you know, you can find us if you want. Um, listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. We're going to play you out on some music by the Miss Jill Scott. So love you. Have a good Bye. week. Bye. Bye. This is watching me. FYI. Okay. Yes. Bye, guys.